So I, I know, especially for some of you who have been involved in Pentecostal, charismatic churches or whatever, you know, you're going to have one of two responses to what seems to be brewing in the spirit. You're going to be saying, hey, yeah, I've been waiting for this. It's come back around for a long time. Oh, crap. Here we go again, right? Because it gets messy. It gets really, really messy when the Holy Spirit begins to move in power, you know? And I think where we often lose focus is we begin to spend so much time trying to take care of messy that we lose sight of him, you know? He's fully able to clean up his own mess. So, so the word is balance, balance. And it's one of the more difficult things to do when living a kingdom of God lifestyle is to maintain balance. I'm sure some of you have heard the expression used in reference to someone who's become what I call a charismaniac. Anyone know a charismaniac? Right? You are one, Bonnie. What do you mean? Come on. <laughs> so, so this is a charismaniac. That it looks like this. They're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, right? I mean, they always seem to be in the stratosphere. You try to talk to them, and they get all ethereal, and you know, start trying to prophesy to you rather than listen to you. Yeah. Right? They're just there, you know? They're just there. They become what some would call spooky spiritual. Like Pat. Pat's spooky spiritual. Right? Yeah. They lose sight of the day-to-day -day complexities of life and therefore lose the capacity to be effective ministers of the grace of Jesus Christ to those who live in any other paradigm except what they're stuck in. Okay. It's even hard to listen to their Christianese language. Like, what are you talking about? What? Okay. Balance. And I can imagine that it may appear to some that the vineyard movement may fit this category because we do focus on the gifts of the Holy Spirit and for some, their Christian experience has been, for the most part, at the opposite end of that pendulum swing. So I thought it would be good today to try and bring some balance and understanding to this topic of balance. What place should the gifts of the Holy Spirit hold in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ? What is the balance and outworking of the pursuit of the activities of the Holy Spirit in the life of the disciple and pursuer of Christ? What is the good fruit produced by understanding the word of the kingdom mentioned by Jesus in the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, where it says this, The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds 
fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on the good soil, on the good soil, and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. In considering these questions of the idea or ideals of spiritual balance, there are two points of reference that become important in developing an understanding of what balance in the kingdom of God even looks like. Both of these points of reference are dialogues that Jesus is having regarding the end of the age, the inbreaking of his rule and reign here on earth, and the impact that will have on the lives of those who call him Lord. Do you know Jesus is Lord today? Do you know Jesus as Lord today? Is he your Lord today? Because you can know it and not be living it. But before we get into that, can anyone give me a day-to-day instance where balance is important? What's that? Checkbook. Big one, right? How important is that? Have a balanced checkbook. <laughs> what else? What about a meal? Balanced meal, right? Right amounts of food and getting a certain amount of nutrition into your body so that your body thrives, right? Isn't that important to, to understand that, that kind of balance, right? Where else do we need balance? Bob? Family and work, right. Oh, yeah. How many workaholics? Come on. Ah, right? Gee, what is, we tipped the scale, don't we? <laughs> Ask mama. <laughs> and, and so it is with spiritual balance. So what are the components of spiritual balance and how do we achieve them? Jesus gives us some indicators to look for and some others to not be taken up with. Listen to his words in Matthew 7:15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. I want to say that again. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, do you know Jesus as Lord? Is he your Lord? Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, this is astounding, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Twice in these verses, Jesus states this, you will recognize them by their fruits. You are recognized by their fruit. You are recognized by Jesus by your fruit. So prophecy, deliverance, mighty works, which is another way of saying miracles, and these are all manifestations of the Holy Spirit that we are striving to have as evident in and through the life of the church here, right? And I have to be honest, if I saw these things happening and they were legitimate prophecies, deliverances, and miracles, I would consider that good fruit. I would look at that and say, good fruit. And yet Jesus categorically rejects the legitimacy of the individuals who are utilizing the gifts in the manifestations. So let me ask you, do you recognize their fruit? And what makes the fruit that Jesus sees fruitless in his sight? I want you to ponder that as we move along. What is the fruit Jesus is referring to here? the fruit that he is looking for. The counterbalance to this set of scriptures is found in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we? see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? Or when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Do you see the fruit here? Do you think it was the things that they did? In a sense, yes, it is. But there is something deeper here, and the indicator is revealed in Jesus' opening statement back in Matthew 7:15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, but inwardly they are something else. They are something other than they are doing, something other than they are portraying. They may act this way, but they're not really that. They may do these things, but it doesn't come from their own heart. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. 
inwardly. Fruit, the quality and value of fruit or fruitfulness in the kingdom is judged by the inward motivations. The motivations of the heart more than by the results of the gifting's expression or use. Listen, Jesus gifted the whole church. Doing gifted things doesn't make you special, doesn't make you holy. Just means you've apprehended what God gave out. It's floating around. You got a hold of it and you gave it away. What was the fruit Jesus saw in these two different groups? In each account, the groups who were being being addressed responded with a question. Anyone remember what they were? What was the first question? In the first instance, it was, Lord, Lord, did we not? Prophecy, cast out demons, do miracles. While in the second account, the question was, Lord, when did we? When did we see you, feed you, clothe you, etc.? In the first instance, it was all about what they had done. While in the second instance, it was such a natural expression of what Christ had done in them that they were not even aware of the fact that they were doing anything out of the ordinary. They were simply doing Jesus by what I call direct flow. Christ in them became the hope of glory, and they poured it out. If Jesus is truly Lord, Lord, then this will be the fruit of your life. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? The gifts given to you are designed to help transform you into a gift a gift that can be given by Jesus as an expression of Jesus to those who are in need, the least of these, my brethren, in order to provide an opportunity for the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ to be offered to them, thus providing fruit, 30, 60, 100-fold. If you begin to think about your giftedness within the framework of God's calling on your life, and on the church being primarily about you, then you will formulate the wrong response questions. And those gifts or the application become a challenge to who you think you are up against who God is trying to form you into. And if your understanding of the formation process is that God is in the business of making me uncomfortable in order to force me to change, then you really do not know the Lord, Lord. And are being deprived of magnificent grace contained in the formational process. The Apostle Paul explains this dynamic in referencing the hardness of the Jews' hearts and minds in relationship to Christ in his day, 2 Corinthians 3. Speaking of the Jews, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. 
Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Can we all say that? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Why are we so afraid of transformation? Why are we so afraid of change? When the scripture is clear, the process of change is moving from one glory to another in Christ. Oh, I want to know his glory. Well, get ready to change. Right? For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So let's dissect this passage and reapply it to our current pursuit of balanced functioning within the realm of the kingdom's supernatural expression through our lives. Because the truth is, as we pursue this track, we are going to bump into a lot of our own stuff as an emotionally charged reaction when our former beliefs are radically challenged. We see this all during the Sockham equipping. I mean, it's just amazing. So Paul is talking about the inability of the Jews, for the most part, to transition from the law to grace, from works-based religious practice to spirit-empowered liberty. I have to say, for the most part, the church likes religion a, a lot more than they like moving in the spirit. Hmm. He says their minds were hardened. Do you know you can harden your mind against God's current revelation, knowledge, and purposes? Just form an opinion. See how deep you can get stuck in an opinion? Hmm? Oh, yeah. Hmm. How? Paul shows us the answer. When they read the Old Covenant, when they read the Old Covenant, their minds were hardened. In other words, they tried to process the new through the veil of the old and end up in a personal dilemma because the old acts as a veil to hide the new from intruding into the worldview that the old maintains. Did you follow that? I'll read it again. This is how your mind gets hardened. And this is applicable today. Okay. They try to process the new through the veil of the old, and end up in a personal dilemma because the old acts as a veil to hide the new from intruding into the worldview that the old maintains. Do you know, if you're used to a certain environment, you're designed to kind of convince yourself to be comfortable in that environment. Anyone deal with, with pain? Pain in their body? Pain in their body, right? So if you got, say you got hip pain, and then someone says to you, are you walking crooked? 
Do you see what you're doing? You're making yourself comfortable with the pain that you have to bear. We adapt and get comfortable in places that we need to move out of. This is what Paul is saying. Every time they hear about Jesus and the new covenant and the promises of God that are yes and amen in Jesus, they look back at the old covenant and they say it doesn't work. This, in turn, causes an internal conflict, which also causes an internal shift from the intellectual conflict to an emotional reaction. What Paul suggests here is the basis of most effective models of Christian inner healing. We go from thought to emotion. Yes, to this day, Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. The heart, in biblical understanding, is the seat of the emotions. And the heart is triggered by the thoughts, fears, and especially the past experiences that are cataloged in the mind. Ever disagree with a preacher? Really vehemently? Right? And then someone asks you about the thing you that you disagree with this preacher about, and you start reading the riot act to this person. It gets all into an emotional dialogue because you've taken this veil and dropped it down to this place, and that begins to emote out of you. It's no longer an intellectual talk. It's an emotional rant. How many of you had emotional rants? Come on. Every hand high. Come on. Both hands up. Come on. We all rant, right? And this is, this is human design. You know that your emotions will, will come out 11 seconds faster than you can reason the situation. Do you ever do that? Oh, why did I say that? Oh, I wish I could get that word back in. <laughs> right? How could you say such a thing? I don't know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Moses has read the old covenant is brought to mind, which is hardened against the threat of change that the news suggests. This, in turn, triggers the embedded and self-protected emotional responses of fight or flight. Fight or flight. You're either going to argue or just say, screw you, right, and be gone. Fight or flight thus keeping the individual trapped in a lifelong loop of hope and disappointment, minimal spiritual growth, and anemic, less-than-abundant life existence in a kingdom that offers life and life more abundant. So what is the answer? Paul offers that also. Not only once, but also an emphatic second time. He says this, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. And then again, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Okay, so you can't do this by, oh, I understand that. I won't act that way again. Until the next time your hot button gets pushed. 
And then you're acting that way again. And you're saying, And I know that this is speaking to you today uh, if the thought in your head right now is that you've already turned to Jesus, right? I'm saved, so how come I still end up here? Because Paul is not talking about a once-for-all salvation experience where we receive the free gift of eternal life, and that's available to all of us. But that's the starting point. That's the beginning of our journey. He doesn't end it there, it begins there. What he is offering is the ongoing redemptive process of the continually redeeming redeemer who desires you to experience his glory, his glory. You are changed from glory to glory. It emanates from him. He's offering it to you through the process of change from the old covenants of our lives. What are you stuck in from the past? Any of you husbands ever hear your wife or someone else say to you, oh, you're just like your father. Oops. Uh, old covenants, old covenants, old covenants. Or maybe you're just the opposite of your father because you established another covenant. And when something new emerges, when someone like, for me, for me, when I first came into the kingdom and, and people started talking to me about, yo, Father God, Father God. You know, I got Jesus. I grew up in the Catholic Church, went to parochial school for nine years. I got Jesus. You know, I understood uh, the Holy Spirit. As soon as I got saved, that's what I was looking for. I wanted the power of the Holy Spirit. I understood that from, from the gate. But it was like four years in that someone challenged me about the father's heart towards me. And I'm thinking, well, which one is he going to be? Because I had two. I had my natural father who was an alcoholic who would abandon us for years at a time. And when he was around and we spent a weekend with him, he'd drop us off at his mother's house and go over to the bar room and we'd see him the next morning out cold on the living room floor. And his way for making up for that was at Christmas, he'd big, big gifts, big gifts for Christmas. That was, the, that was the makeup, right? And then, of course, I had my stepfather. His hands were like ham hocks. They were massive. I mean, they, they had to, I don't know, maybe it was because I was like this big, but <laughs> they were huge. And they always seemed to catch the back of my head. Pick me up by the wrist Hit me in the back of the head and send me flying. So which one are you? Which one are you, God? Which one are you going to be? You're going to be the lush that will say, oh, party hearty and enjoy your life, you know? Or are you going to be the guy that's going to beat the crap out of me? Because I had no idea. I had no idea. I had two covenants I had to wrestle with. He was neither one of them. Didn't fit that that box. See, and for two years, I lived out of that old covenant, trying to reconcile my mind and my spirit to relating to Father God, who, who Jesus was all about. Just go through the Gospels and see how many times Jesus mentions his Father in heaven. 
not only for himself but for us. How important is it to abandon that old covenant and embrace the new covenant of the Father's love expressed by the giving of his son, Jesus Christ? Jesus desires you to experience his glory through the process of change from the old covenants of our lives to behold I make all things new do you know how much transformation that encompasses how much change that puts on our pathway I make all things new New. Every time you expect, whether here or here, something to happen a certain way, the possibility of something new is right there in the name of Jesus. As you're approaching it, if you turn it over to Jesus, Lord, I'm so afraid it's going to go this way or it's going to be this way. It's always been that way for me. But would you take over? Would you take the veil away from my mind? Would you take the veil away from my heart? Would you do this thing for me, through me, in me? Would you make this new? And as he does, we get changed. We get transformed. I make all things new. Promises of God that are yes and amen in Jesus. That's the new. Understand this, God will not put you on display to show you how broken you are. But he will show you how broken you are while he offers you the means of healing, deliverance, or just plain liberty and freedom from your past hurts, traumas, fears. In light of this, consider Jesus' statement. This is very important. No one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. Is fit for the kingdom. This is a forward motion kingdom. Don't look back to your old covenants. Don't look back to even, even when you came into the kingdom, and, and a lot of us have really bad church history. Leave it in the history book, will you? Let's go on with Jesus. Let's go on to the new. Let's find out what he's got in store for us now and tomorrow. He's the great I am, the not the great I used to be. Right? I don't want to used to be God. Let me finish with this wonderful example from the book of Acts of how God can, can and will lead us on to change in spite of our worldviews, cultural taboos, and even self-protective propensities. None of us have those, right? Let's do this. Acts 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion. Everyone know what a centurion is? So maybe he's a, a one-star general. Would, would that be? He's got a thousand men out. What would that be? Would he be a captain? Captain? General? All right, so pretty high-ranking Roman officer. Caesarea is the capital of Rome, in Israel, not Jerusalem. Caesarea is the capital of Rome in Israel. 
So he's a high-ranking Roman officer stationed in the capital of Israel representing Rome. This guy's a big wig, right? A centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Now, I, I would love to sit with Luke on this one and just ask him. So when Cornelius was praying to God, this generic word, God, in his mind, who is he praying to? Don't know. Don't know. But there was something about the inward man that attracted the living God's attention. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms, A-L-M-S, not your arms. Alms. I know I'm... Bostonian, so it's easy for me to lose letters. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, did you catch that? Prayers and helping the needy move God's heart to move heaven on your behalf. Prayers and helping the needy will move God to move heaven on your behalf. Don't ever underestimate the power of your prayers or the impact of your giving. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, and by the way, Joppa is Tel Aviv today. Okay, Just so you can put that in context. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to do what? Pray. To pray. To pray, right? This is powerful stuff. And he became hungry and wanted something. Did that ever happen to you? Settle down to pray, and you start to remember all the things you wish you had done. Oh, gee, I'm, you know, I should have had lunch before. I get this grumbling of mine. <laughs> so, so Peter's doing the same thing, you know. He began, became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So, did you get this? Peter is hungry while in prayer. So heaven is moved. They drop down a whole sheet of food. Barbecue time, friend. <laughs> yeah, right. 
right? Heaven answers his need, but in a much deeper way than he would ever expect it. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So everything that heaven offered to Peter to eat was everything that his religious beliefs, his cultural beliefs, and his personal preferences had forbid him to eat for all of his previous life. It was a well-established old covenant in his life. But when he told heaven he was hungry, heaven offered the thing to him that he would forbid himself to partake of. Now watch the result. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed, he's having a theophostic moment here. You know, he's like, what the heck is this? Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. And behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to us whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, Peter still stuck in dealing with his old covenant, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and he said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is, how unlawful it is. You see, Peter reflects back to the old covenant. I've been pondering this since I was up on the roof. It's unlawful for me, for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Lord, I've never eaten from that sheet. I've never gone in amongst the Romans. I've never done any of that. And God's reply is what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. Where I'm sending you, you better go. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter got the vision. So how did God show Peter all of this? God addressed Peter's appetite, a felt need that was rooted deeply in his past life, a felt need 
rooted deeply in his past life. Anyone got any felt needs that are unmet, rooted in your past? Oh, yeah. These are the things that God is after. He challenged him to push through the old barriers that restricted Peter's ability to partake of certain foods, removing the veil from his mind so that the veil over his heart would not be triggered when God sent him to step into the new thing that God was doing right in the middle of a high-ranking Roman soldier's home. The very people who are persecuting his nation is the very people God sent him to. And salvation and the Holy Spirit came to the Gentiles. That is the door opener as to why you have salvation and access to the Holy Spirit today. Because Peter on the roof obeyed the vision. A little something that happened as I finished this word. I got an email from Graham Cook. I don't know if any of you are familiar with him. I know some of you read his books. and It literally dinged on my computer as I hit the final period. And his message popped up. This is what he said to me. I've got some dangerously good news for you today. Jesus has already won the battle raging in our minds. He's already killed off the old man that loves to resist the newness of life promised to us. The only reason the battle still wages inside of us is because most of us want new but still think old. Huh? How's that for confirmation? Wow. I think this is important stuff to God. So we're going to pray. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Remove the veils from our minds and hearts today that we would not turn back from our kingdom pursuit of more of Jesus in our lives. Lord, that we would not be moved by fear to not go forward. That we would not be frozen in fright Lord, or run in flight away from the changes that you're drawing each of us to. Come, Holy Spirit. Begin to touch our lives in this place today. I'm going to ask you to do something as I continue to pray. If you've got something from your past that kind of has ownership of your life, of your emotions, that thing that causes you to rage or to run or to go into depression. You know, maybe it's someone's word or even someone. You see them or you hear from them and all of a sudden you're back in a terrible memory and all bound up in emotions. Maybe it's an abuser. a heavy-handed stepdad. I don't know what it would be, but it's an old covenant in Christ. 
I'm going to ask you to, from your heart, lift that up and, and express that by lifting up your hands to Jesus and say this to him, Lord, 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 I give you my old covenant today. I abandon it here at your feet. And I ask you to replace it now with your new and everlasting covenant of love. A new and everlasting covenant of love. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. More, more, oh God. Lord, begin to touch minds and hearts in this place. Begin to remove the veils. I, I just declare a word right now of liberty and freedom. The rending of veils. This image that was seen when Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross. It says, and the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And for the first time, they were able to look through to where the presence of God had been. Lord, would you tear the veils in our minds and hearts that keep us from seeing you and the glory that you have for us. Father, I come against depression and oppression right now in the name of Jesus. Father, bondage, Lord, to stuff, whether it be alcohol or drugs or sex or feeling loved from all the wrong places, this need, this neediness, oh God, that doesn't turn to you but turns to the old. Would you heal it, oh God? Would you tear the veil away? More, Holy Spirit, more. I just want to put out an invitation. If you feel like the Holy Spirit is, is addressing something in you, I just want you to come up. We're going to pray with you. We're going to minister, uh, release to you, deliverance to you, whatever the need is. Healing, inner healing, emotional healing. You know, it's time to move away from the old and step into the new.